This is Kim Perlack, Daryl Bailey, Abigail Aronson Zosher, John Finn, and Ian Steed. And this is Coffee Talk with the Berkeley Guitar Department. Welcome to our special edition of Coffee Talk. This is a bonus episode specifically for those of you who are doing placement auditions coming into Berkeley, which are also called ratings auditions when you, you do them. And thank you all for being with us today. We've got Cheryl Bailey, assistant chair as usual. Hey, Cheryl. Hey, coffee time. Coffee cheers. We've got Ian Steed as usual, our senior coordinator. Hey, Ian. Hey, good morning, folks. Here's my coffee cup. I think we all need to hold up our coffee cups. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we've got, that was John <laughs> Finn. John Finn, a professor of guitar. Hey, John, welcome. Oh, hi, thank you. Yeah, welcome. And uh, Abby, we've got Abby Aronson Zosher. Hey, Abby. Hello, thank you. You're welcome, and good to see you. And and David Kuczynski. Hello, Java time. All right, so um, Abby, what are you drinking today? What kind of coffee do you have? Um, I am having uh, Twining's English breakfast. Oh, very nice. Uh, John, it's not really coffee. I, I indirectly said it's not really coffee. That's okay. <laughs> you could still be on Coffee Talk with, with tea. Um, John, what, what do you what do you got? Oh, mine. Um, <clears throat> so, so mine is, uh, you know, is the exclusive stop and shop uh, variety. It's, um, uh, it, it's, it's, it's called Morning Joe. I think it's made by the Starbucks company, uh, but it is whole bean coffee. I actually have a bean grinder, although I haven't gotten all the way to roasting the beans like Cheryl. But uh, uh, let's say I'm working up to that. <laughs> I love that. I can yeah. hook you up. I can hook you up. I, I'm, yeah. So that's, that's, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Wait till we're back. You know, wait till we're back on campus and we've got that rolling. Um, yeah. What about you, David? What do you have this morning? I actually have this organic kind. I can, mm. the fridge, I can pull it out if you want to see the brand. No, that's okay. We'll get in touch with you later about that. So everybody's fully caffeinated. I know Cheryl and Ian, you're fully caffeinated from earlier. And so am I. Um, so thank you all for being here um, because I think um, ratings auditions at Berkeley are, are really important for students and they also sometimes can be stressful and, and mysterious in feeling. And so um, we're glad to have you here. Um, they're also like a myth, you know, there's a lot of myths going around about ratings auditions. Um, when I first was hired, for example, um, someone said to me from outside of Berkeley, they said, that's so amazing. You guys have ratings. How do you do that? With that many guitarists, with a thousand guitarists, how do you rate them? Like, how do you know the difference between number 498 and number 499? And, and I said, well, you don't rank them. That's not what a ratings audition is. It's not a ranking system. It's not, that's not, a, that's not what this is. Right. So, uh, I think that there are so many myths out there and basically ratings auditions are a placement system to make sure that everybody can get in the right ensembles. And also because we have gigs coming in from different areas outside of the college, within the college, studio sessions, performances, it's really helpful to people when they're looking to hire students to see what your reading comfort level is and and what your improvisation comfort level is and, and so on and so forth. So I think 
Um, the first question is, there are four numbers that average into an overall rating. And let's talk about what the numbers are and um, kind of how you see them. And, um, and we could go one by one with the numbers, how you help students practice to get their skills a little bit higher in each of, of the numbers. So the first number is we've got reading, there's improvisation, there's instrumental skills, and there's your rhythm. Um, Abby, what about reading? What jumps out to you? Um, you're a professor of classical music and improvisation, and you work with a lot of songwriters and jazz players. So what are some of the reading things that jump out to you? Is this like a true crimes kind of kind of uh, format? <laughs> it can be. Or like, because I think that I think I can uh, I can say here that my readings ever since I was five ever since I was born probably but only tested from when I was five um, is has always been the worst thing for me. <laughs> I tend to go and I uh, you know I tend to go by my ear and that's just the so I've had to work on my reading by using the other uh, you know legs of my three-legged stool of ears brain and reading. Um, to kind of pull my reading up. The ensemble audition reading uh, examples are clearer than most of the kind of sight reading test experiences I think that we have because they give you exactly two tries. Um, and it's it's very specific, uh, you know, you, you they, they, they give it to you according to the, they have them all divided up in terms of level difficulty. Um, and you, you read it once and then they give you a couple seconds or, you know, and then you read it again. So it's very clear. Um, that would, I, I would just, that would be a really tough thing for me. Um, and, uh, so I guess my, I guess I'm, I'm thinking of the aftercare quotient here, which is, uh, not the prep quotient, but I'm just saying I'd have to be, I'd have to be easy on myself and, and, and patient that in mind, um, for the uh, sight reading part, I would say, um, I would say to do a small amount daily and get used to doing it in the format that they do it, which is count in, don't stop, uh, and that there's two kinds: there's a rhythm kind and there's a pitch kind. And I think the place to get examples to practice would be the ensemble department. Mm -hmm. Uh, or maybe we have some too, but. So I think you brought up a couple good points that it might be good to take a moment to mention is that there's two times that you kind of think about these auditions. One is when you're coming right in, mm -hmm. you're coming into school, you've been accepted. It's your first week on campus and um, we're going to place you. So you're going to come in and you're going to meet with guitar faculty member and an ensemble guitar faculty member in a room, you're gonna play a piece of your choosing and then they're going to ask you to do a few different things, sight reading, gonna ask you to improvise. They're gonna ask you some questions about your music. And then they're going to rate you in those four numbers that I listed. Then after that, you can redo that placement audition as many times as you'd like during your time at Berkeley and they're generally offered at midterms and finals every semester. And I think you can do it once a semester. Right now that we're remote, they happen during week 10. 
So everyone who's listening to this, you're actually listening to it on the day we're sending you a reminder to sign up for your rating submission. And so what Abby and David and John are going to start to do is talk to you about the different categories and like what to expect when you go in. So Abby, I think you just laid out how people feel about reading, which I started with on purpose, right? Because it is very intimidating to some people and kind of the format you come in, you see an example, you have two tries and they're listening for two different things. Um, David, what in general have you given in ratings auditions for reading? Like what, it, what are people looking at charts? Uh, Chart-wise or melody-wise, and, and what are the things that you uh, advise students in terms of preparing based on what you've seen and heard? Number one is, <clears throat> as we all know, there's a lot of guitar player reading jokes, and there is a kernel of truth of that. Guitar players are often not good readers. I was one of them. What's very frustrating for a guitar player is to work on your reading and but then not be aware of the chord rhythms. That's a whole different skill set. Mm -hmm. So what Abby said, a little bit every day, that's also really important. It does not help you if you work, if you do your reading th three hours every other weekend. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, doesn't happen. What does help is... 20, 30 minutes a day. What actually really helped my reading was rhythm reading. Now, the reason why I emphasize rhythm is because unless you're a microtonal nut job like me who likes to work in 24 or 72 note per octave systems, <laughs> there's a simple truth. There's only 12 notes. So there's good news here. <laughs> but even in 4-4, just whole notes, half notes, quarter notes. There's hundreds of rhythmic per permutations. My, my reading exploded when a teacher said, read the rhythms first and then much slower add the pitches. So actually I used to live in Alston. So on the train to and from school every day, I would just read rhythms. And that really helped my reading. Then much slower, um, add the pitches and do this without stopping. Another myth about sight reading is it's not so much about precision, it's about not, not losing your place. The reality, being, the reality being if you're in an orchestra or a big band and, the, and they bring in a brand new piece, you can't have someone constantly saying, oh, 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 hold on, hold on, uh, let's, let's do it. Whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. Let's, let's just, hold one more time, whoa, uh, you know. You have to keep plowing through. For the ratings audition, here's a really big heads up. Another thing that Abby said, you get two chances. So you should plow through proudly, like that bull in a china shop, you know doesn't care but the fact is what I often see is somebody makes a mistake and then they stop and then we have to say okay we'll do it again but if you had plowed through you would have seen all the other parts you're supposed to play so for me the really big heads up are um, don't stop keep on going and um, do chord rhythm exercises initially just read any type of chords but then 
the the kind of rhythmic things, you know, chords with rhythms. That's something that that wasn't emphasized. Nobody told me that, and then so I was like, I got my reading together, and then they gave me a chord thing, and I completely fouled out. So a great source of chord rhythms are the new real books. There's there's a lot of um, in the old real books. It's really like you know just the melody and the chords. The new real books have a lot of um, chords, uh, you know, chord rhythm examples, tunes with that in there. So those are so those are uh, great resources. Great. So number one is really every day, twenty minutes. Then when you're auditioning, plow through proudly, <laughs> loudly and proudly. <laughs> And um, chord rhythms as well. Don't forget those. That's, that's frustrating for a guitar player to do all that work and then be like, oh, boy. I think that's really important that you mention that because your reading examples can come in two formats, right? Right. Single note melodies and then also chords and slashes, which both of them, you know, we do a lot of reading on guitar and it could come in either one of those formats. And that's exactly how the ratings auditions are. They're either going to be chords and slashes or a single note melody. That's a great point, Ian. Actually, you read my mind. That was the next introduction to John. Um, could you talk, as you give your advice, John, could you start by describing, as Ian did, like what are the types of things that people will see when they have to sight read? Okay, so <clears throat> I think the first thing I wanted to say about it is that, you know, gu guitar playing and reading most guitar players, or at least what, what, my first lesson, my teacher put me, sat me in a room, I was six. He said, make your fingers look like a triangle. Okay, now when you do that, that's called a D chord. Now point the triangle in the opposite direction. That's a D7 chord. Okay, and that was like for the first year, that was how I learned how to play guitar. And, you know, so I sort of, that sort of set up this association of, you know, you make your fingers make these shapes and these shapes make these sounds and that's how you figure it out. And as it turns out, there's there there's that's that's a very common approach among many of course not all but many guitar players tend to approach that way we have this sort of relationship with the guitar um where you know it's the, the you know the, the logic is is nothing like what other instruments um do and part of the reason why that is i mean if you think about it if you want to play the pitch middle c on a guitar there's five different locations that you can do it and you, and if you've got four fingers, that's that's twenty different ways you could play the same pitch, right? So, um, so if you're a tenor saxophone player, no matter what key you're in, you know middle C is middle C is middle C is middle C, no matter what key or what context you're in. So, you know, finding the notes on the guitar is a very different process than other instruments. Um, come, you know, aggravate that with the fact that we haven't um, that 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 we don't initially learn by learning the notes on the guitar blah 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 then we get to music school so um and and a lot of kids are coming in you know they've learned on youtube or they've taken lessons and reading isn't really a thing in fact i have a lot of kids say to me you know when, when they email me about questions about coming into berkeley it's like well do i really have to learn to read and what i tell them is like well you're gonna be taking classes with people who aren't guitar players so, and, and as they're talking about music, they're probably going to be taking standard music notation and writing examples up on the board. Now, if you can't read it, <laughs> that creates a little... Okay, so 
that you know that said now let's take it to if we're talking about uh ensemble auditions and and, and reading examples i i concur with everything dave said and everything abby said um when i describe the process of sight reading uh, doing cold sight reading um i i offer a uh, what i call the hierarchy of reading you know uh, which which is number one Always know where you are in the music. Always make sure that you're looking at the right measure as the music goes by. Because if you don't know where you are, then your chances of playing it right are zero. Second, play the rhythm right. Even if you're taking a wild guess, if you take a wild guess at the notes and play the rhythm right, your chance of playing the right note is 1 in 12. If you do it the opposite way, the the chances of playing it right are, are much further remote so you know i i want to really sort of underscore what da- what dave said that was beautifully articulated um so then the third thing is you know that finally get, get the notes right but you know the sensation i sort of describe is that you know if you're sight doing a cold sight reading with a group of people and you're all playing together it's like you're standing on top of the mountain and you uh, and uh, on a set of skis and you've pushed off so once that happens you're getting to the bottom of the mountain now, so so then from there, it's you know how how you know how how gracefully are you doing that, right? <laughs> Either way, you're going down the mountain. <laughs> so, um, so those are the kinds of things that you know that that, that sort of come come up on that. I, I think now, in in terms of real world sight reading, there are very few situations that you're going to walk into a gig and somebody hands you a piece of music and they go, go, you know. Um, but it is important, I think, to be to learn how to, to effectively read because it's really just an expression of, of how quickly can you learn a piece of music. And if you're doing it professionally, you want that skill to be more or less transparent you want to be able to show up and sound good and be able to solve the problem without any cues from anybody else so the more effectively you can do that the the more you work right so um but one thing that's often really not discussed is the the chart gets put in front of you then the next question that that i always ask is is the chart written by somebody that understands how guitars is uh is written so am i going to have to interpret what i'm reading or can i just play what i see in front of me is is, is what i'm looking at trustworthy which is kind of unique to guitar it looks like uh, um looks like kim wanted to say something i do because i think that's so true and so what we're trying to do here with these auditions is put something in front of you that we know you can read so that you're prepared for the times and when you don't know what's going to happen. And, and uh, I think Abby and I are from a tradition where you will walk into a room and people will drop something in front of you. Yes. And then that's where you find out that John is correct, that you're not really ever sight reading because you've had this experience so many times that you kind of know what to expect. And so one thing that I think is really helpful is as you're practicing these materials that we're going to direct you to, that you, you train your eyes to look ahead like the way you do when you're reading a book. So when you push off the ski slope or when you're going to plow through the example, like John and David <laughs> said, which is so smart, you're looking ahead and you can see the tree ahead of you. And you know that that tree is an E on the 
fifth fret of the second string where you have your hand in the fifth position. Like you, you kind of see ahead, where's your low note? Where's your high note? Where do you have to put your hand so that you choose the location of that fingering, as John mentioned? You have different choices. You're going to choose one where you can grab all the notes. And that's where the preparation comes in. And so I just want to, um, there's so many things to think about and everything you're all saying is so valuable. And I just want to remind everyone that what's going to happen is you're going to walk into that audition room and you're going to get a melodic example, as Ian said. And then you're also going to get a chord chart and they're going to want you to read that. You're going to want you to read the chord chart and they're going to want you to read that notated melody. And so these are, that's what you will be seeing regardless of your style. And now um, we can talk about a little bit like for some people, oh yeah, like reading a chord chart is not a big deal because they do that all day. For other people, reading a notated melody is no big deal because they do that all day. You could give them counterpoint and they could probably read it. For other people, as John said, you know, maybe you learn by shapes and by your ear and you've never really read anything. So your experience with it is going to be different. So stylistically, there, there will be strengths within the numbers that we expect. But it doesn't mean that if you have a lower number in reading, for example, because you're a funk player, we'd like you to get that up so that you can read charts in professional situations and have more opportunities. But it doesn't mean you can't be in the highest level funk band. Mm -hmm. But if you want to be in a classical ensemble, it'd be really good to make sure your reading is at a higher level. But then your improvisation level might be lower. So it's not a judgment about you. It's just a placement tool for your skill set that will help you be in the right place as you're getting all these skills higher. Um, hey, Kim, um, also too, I, I, and I love what everybody's saying, I, I often like to think about those ratings as a benchmark. <laughs> you know, it's particularly when you come in um, and then you re-audition and your numbers go up because they're always going to go up because you're working on your skills all the time. And I, and I think that's the hardest thing for any of us as artists is to see your own progress. So I think if you can wrap your head around it in terms of this is a good way to see progress. Like, like my reading, I came in at one or two. Wow, I'm, I got threes in my reading or I got, or any of those categories. It gives you a good perspective on how your work paying off. Cheryl, how do you help people when they say they want to raise their reading up a level? What do you I, advise? Yeah, I mean, everybody, everything everybody said is really true. And I really, what uh, Fuse was talking about is reading away from the instrument. Because if it's not clear in your mind, I mean, your mind, your brain is what organizes your instrument. And if it's not clear there, it's not going to instantly happen. So I, I find, you know, if you have a commute, like that's a perfect time. You commute on the train or you take some time away and just, you could do air guitar or, or whatever, but I think it's that process. And also going slow. You don't have to read it at, at tempo right out of the gate. So take your time where you're really relaxed and you can understand what it is. Yeah. But, but everybody, I mean, everybody's really sharing really great, um, really wisdom about how to approach it. You know, Ian, um, I had a couple thoughts. Um, one is that Ian sends out reading examples 
for practice for the proficiencies every semester, about two weeks before final exams. And those are written by our colleagues, Mike Williams and Jim Kelly and Rick Peckham, who are professors in the guitar department. And those would be good resources for everybody to hang on to, right, Ian? Like if they collected all of those, and I believe we are in the process of collecting them and, and trying to distribute them to you for practice. But those would be good practice resources, I think. And, and I'm wondering, like, if you could share just your perspective on that, and then you're the, the person who's most recently done a ratings audition out of this group. Um, so what was your reading experience, and do you think those kinds of charts would help? Well, first of all, yeah, absolutely, they they would help. You know, uh, the, they're very similar. I mean, so the way that the guitar department stuff is laid out is that generally there are single note melodies and chords in the same example. And that might be the case for some of the ensemble rating stuff. But I mean, like, I don't know if y'all have ever, you know, played in like a big band where you have like a guitar part where you've got, you know, the changes and all the slashes written out and you got to make the hits with the chords. That's a lot of the stuff that I saw as a student um, doing ratings auditions, um, which I personally always felt more comfortable with than um, the other uh, single note stuff, which was always a lot more <laughs> cognitively taxing for me as I was playing. Uh, but yeah, the, the guitar department examples, which, um, you know, if you're a student and you've been here for a semester or two or more uh you just have to search your inbox and there's plenty of examples that i've sent out uh and you can also talk to your teacher you know because they've got a lot of this stuff too um a lot of those examples are hanging around uh and you can also always you know email uh me or any of us in the guitar department and we can hook you up yeah, and I bet we you could also um, maybe you and Ben could put some of those old examples up on the um, supplemental materials section of our website before yep. the ratings audition. Mm -hmm. um, ratings audition signups, everyone are in March, and so um, we'll we'll put a bunch of resources up there so that you can just get in there and start to practice a little bit. And uh, and John, you also mentioned that. There, our former chair, Bill Levitt, wrote a great book if people want to dig even deeper into what David was talking about, the melodic uh, rhythms for guitar. Yeah, the, so, you know, that, that was a book that was the, uh, that, that the teacher I took that taught me reading when I first came into Berkeley, he used that book. And what's so great about that book is that um, you, you, if you, if you open the book and, and you've got nine page nine in the left-hand side and page 10 in the right-hand side, pa page nine will have a series of one note exercises with like different combinations of rhythms, um, uh, on it that you would, and, and all the, all the, the exercises would just be, you know, you play a G note and, and then just be a series of rhythms and you would just kind of cycle through all, all of those rhythm exercises on the left-hand side of the page. Then the right-hand side would be, you know, a corny little piece of music um, that would use all the rhythms that were on the left-hand side. So first thing, so, so his, his thing was, you know, learn these rhythm patterns as sort of rhythmic vocabulary patterns and then turn that into a piece of music on the right-hand side of the page. And, 
you know that that's one of those things like it kind of kind of got thrown out years ago when we redid the uh, uh guitar department curriculum but that's one of those baby out with the bathwater moments <laughs> you know that it was a really great book that's been largely forgotten about so uh, you know it was really helpful for me in terms of uh, you know associating you know the whole idea of like looking at a bunch of black dots and then transforming that into a piece of music because that's essentially what you're doing that's a great point. I think it reinforces David's point that working on this stuff is constantly like gathering materials, coming up with concentrated strategies and doing them every day. And what we have to help you is we have these books in our library from our former chairs and faculty. You have your current faculty you can go to, and then you have the resources that we send out for practice that that Ian and Ben are really our coordinators. They're in literally the coordinating process of putting those together. So you wanna constantly be going to that little area for students on our website, the guitar department website, which you can get into with your email and your password. And then just go to proficiency materials and there's so many practice things that will help you with a lot of this stuff. You, you um, know, Kim, I was just thinking, cause everybody here has great resources of things that really help with the re it'd be cool if maybe we gather that mm -hmm. you know sort of if you want some great books to check out check mm -hmm. these out um and maybe we can send that around to everybody i think it's a great idea i mean this is w the faculty is a living library so we'll just start to um open up some new stacks and, and uh, circulate it um abby had a great point and david you alluded to this too uh, when we were setting up there's a little bit of a difference between the entering placement ratings audition and the continuing ratings auditions that come. And, um, and it, when it comes to sight reading, that difference is meaningful. So Abby, can you talk about that a little bit, especially yeah. in regard to reading, and then we'll move on to the other categories. Yes, it's kind of like a, a free gift for new customers. Um, but <laughs> it's a good thing to take advantage of. And uh, what I'm talking about is that at the entering ratings audition, your very first one, when you first are coming into school, um, uh, but you're at school, but you're going to start classes in a few days kind of audition, not the one like a year before, um, there you're going to have the reading materials. I think that a day or two before. And this is a really, really great chance to get those prepared gorgeously because future ratings auditions while you're in school, when you go back to improve your ratings, those are actually true surprises where they stick them in front of you. And um, th this entering audition, you will have it a day or two before. And very often I do see people come in for the entering audition and I think they're not quite sure uh, they didn't quite realize that they could they could totally prepare that reading and that that was the reading that they were going to do um, when they got asked, you know, a day or two later. Uh, so that that's a real opportunity to take advantage of. Prepare that reading when you get it, when you first come into Berkeley and they hand you some stuff saying, here's your ensemble audition. It's going to happen in a day or two. Uh, and look for that, look for that reading and then totally prepare it. That's a great point. Um, and what we've done is we've done, added an extra step because some of the people listening to this now have just been accepted. And so there's this little period where you've been accepted, but you haven't formally become a student. And 
you don't you don't have a, a password yet to get into some of these resources. So what we did was Ian sent you an email if you're that in that position yesterday and included some practice reading in the email. So you can actually take a look at exactly what we're talking about if you're in that position and you can't get to some of the resources. And then what we'll start to do is put some of these things on our more public um, channels and, and you can kind of take a look at them so you see what we're talking about. Um, David, what's your um, perspective on the difference between like preparing, especially for the reading portion, for the entering audition, which is a placement, not the one where you're auditioning to be accepted, but after you've been accepted the first time, uh, and then the subsequent auditions after that? Well, prepared reading is kind of the general standard of the industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, unless you're in an orchestra, classical or jazz, there's not that much. It's important. Um, but often, it, yeah, it's rare that you have an absolute, like, um, sight reading. You go in, you, you just, just, just place in front of you. But does that happen in the ensemble auditions? Like, if I were to take an ensemble audition at week 10, are they going to place reading in front of me that I haven't practiced? Okay, that's, yeah, that's... So can that's, you talk about that a little bit? Well, um, it's, you know, the basic strategies that I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. It's um, take a deep breath. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, look at those rhythms and then try and attach the notes and just plow through all the way and then do it, try and do it, you know, make it better. And then you get a second chance. You always have two reading examples. Un un unless, unless you just completely fly through one, and then we can tell, oh, we're going to go to the next, you know, we're going to uh, give, give you then, you know, harder readings. But that, which is good because you've already been bumped up. John, what do you say to students who say, look, I'm a rock player? Or if you have students who are studying with you, like, I'm a classical player. I play bluegrass. Like, I, I can't read jazz charts. Like, what if they put a jazz chart in front of me? Like, what what's your strategy? What, how do you help them strategize? Um, and number one, does that happen sometimes? And number two, like, what do you tell people to do when, when you're on the mountain and you've got your skis and then all of a sudden the mountain turns into all the things you are? Okay, so <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, every like uh, I'm going to say every uh, variation of that has has happened to me. But uh, um, I, uh, the I mean I think the first thing that that I that that I tell students is that you know look look if you've been learning on YouTube and you're looking at YouTube and you're looking at the internet, you know um, most people will say well you know guitar players you know. We, we don't read that you know reading is like kind of that's that's kind of for like the old people it's not something that we do any we don't do that anymore you know and you know i think the truth is that um i i think i think what happens is that people who are learning how to play guitar are sort of exchanging information uh on on youtube and the internet and trying to do the best they can you know to to, to help each other 
Okay, but that I but and I think that the number of people who can actually play guitar and read is much smaller, and those people aren't necessarily posting on the internet about it. So, and again, this is just an opinion, but I my point is I think that there's a lot of misinformation out there about uh, about whether or not learning to read is even a good idea, right? But um I, you know, what I often tell students is that, like, you know, like you might be, uh, you know, a jazz playing classical guitar player right now, but you don't know where you're going to go later, you, you know, and, and and I think that if you don't learn how to read, it's it, it's the same as deciding to, you know, to, uh, you know, to, to live in the United States and, and never learn how to read English. You can do it. Okay, but I think your life gets a, get get gets more complex and more difficult and more inconvenient if you don't. So, yes. um, so you know, and and uh, you know, uh, written music is, is a common language that musicians, not just guitar players, but musicians use. So, you know, the question I often ask students is, do you want to be a guitar player who plays music, or do you want to be a musician who plays guitar? So now, think about it from that. Yeah. So go ahead. For reference, you um, are a rock guitar player who also plays with the Boston Pops. Yes. So you do read. Yes. Like so a I'm, monster. Yes. Well, like. I wouldn't say. Okay, so I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you a quick little story of something that happened to me. So, uh, so uh, typically the Boston Pops rehearsals happen weekdays. You typically start around 10:30 in the morning. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, and I live about an hour and away uh, away. So about nine o'clock. On a Tuesday morning, I get a phone call. Hey, John, um, listen, we got a rehearsal that starts this morning, and we kind of forgot that there's a guitar part. Um, you know, can you come in and, and play on this rehearsal and play on tonight's concert? And it's like, well, okay. I you know I don't know what traffic's gonna be like. I'll get the, get there as soon as I can. So um, you know, so, so they say, okay, well, just get here when you can. You know, and and then uh, so I so I jump in the car, you know, drive down Symphony Hall. Uh, you know, open the door, you know, put myself on my chair. And then Keith looks over and he goes, oh, John, oh, good. You're here. We can play that piece now. So I, I open the book and it's 16 bars of classical, unaccompanied solo guitar. Just me for 16 bars. Mm -hmm. And I look down at it and I look back at it. And I said, man, I'm so sorry. There's no way I'm going to be able to do that right here and right now. Mm. There's there's no way. And he kind of goes, okay, play something in the key of B minor for 16 bars that sounds vaguely classical for now. <laughs> yeah, so that's a good point. So I just, this is such a great discussion, and I just want to bring it back to, like, real life versus what the students are going to be doing. Cause you want to get those things closer. You want to be honest about everything you're doing professionally. Well, the um, but I also want to say, what if you walk into an audition for ensemble and you get something stylistically like that, that you don't expect in that moment, instead of saying, because the difference I think between that professional situation is you can't waste the conductor's time and you're going right. to say, how can I get through this for you to get you what you need? And then if you need me to play on this, I'm going to need more time in an audition. When you're in a different type of environment, how do you approach that example right then 
so that you can, you know, just show some of what you're doing. And then well, I'm going to ask Abby a different question here. Okay, so so the reason why I tell, told that story is because I think it's important to know where your limitations are. Right. You know, meaning that like if, uh, you know, if you go into an audition and somebody throws at you, throw something at you that you know that you can't do, then, you know, then you just can't look, I know, <laughs> you know, because I think it looks worse if you try to pull it off when you really know you can't. If, 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 if you're kind of short of that, then... I think you sort of approach it by sort of owning your own abilities and just focus on what can I play that's going to sound good with what they're doing. Because and that that's really the mission of the ensemble department is to teach people how to play together and to sound good together. And only a portion of that has to do with being able to decode the black dots that are in front of you and transform that into music. You see? Okay, so, great. Yeah. So you, it's okay, first of all, say I'm a classical musician and I walk into the ratings audition and I don't, and I'm terrified that they're going to put that right. jazz chart in front of me. It's okay first for me to say, I just want everyone to know I'm a classical musician and this isn't my strength. And then maybe also have, if they say, well, just give it a try. Then I have a strategy that I could put in place based on the way that you've all said, here's what you do to go through. So that's a really viable way and an honest way and a completely acceptable way to, to approach something that throws you. Abby, would you agree? Because I think you have a lot of students as John does that where you, maybe your style isn't exactly what you'll see. So what do you say, what would you say to me if, if I came to you in a lesson and said, I was afraid of that happening? Um, I think it, it all has to do with, uh, this is my shopping experience now, you know, buying the right supplement packs, you know, going and getting the kit for this and the kit for that. I would go and figure out what my auditions were coming up, whether they're going to be Boston pops, that'll never happen. Um, uh, but it was uh, a long time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, or whether it's going to be for an ensemble audition, um, at Berkeley. And if it's for an ensemble edition at Berkeley, what I do is I'd try and get a bunch of that material, like what Ian, what you were talking about having available and also, uh, the ensemble department website. Uh, I would get some of that tailored material and practice that in specific. Um, as, That's so that, yeah. That's a so great idea. Speaking their own language, you know, <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a, I think you've all made a great case for why this is all valuable and how to approach it um, both when you're able to prepare and then, John, when you're thrown. Um, because if you think of the next category that really scares people, maybe just under the reading part is the improv part, right? So, um, John, I'd like to start with you because no, I think it, though is um, instrumental skills. Right, but we're going to come back around to that later, though, because I think but, but improv, I think, is scary. I want to go with scary first. Um, improv is scary to people who don't, right? There's a lot of styles who that don't call upon that as much as reading or, or other things or technical ability or instrumental skill, as David just said. Um, and sometimes it's the rock and, and bluegrass and fingerstyle and classical players um, who kind of feel that way especially if, again, they think there might be 
a chart with sort of jazz changes put in front of them. So first of all, um, what is the improv part like? What do you get? Um, maybe in, I'll come right back to John, but Ian, since you've done them more recently, what are the kinds of things that you get for that? Like, what do they ask you to do in the improv part? Uh, well, they do put a chart in front of you that might be a jazz tune. You know, they might put a standard in front of you. And maybe the standard is uh, is is one of those sleepers, you know, where it seems like a really easy tune, but maybe there's a little twist and turn that you have to be really prepared for. And so, I mean, my experience in, in the improv part of a ratings audition has been you read a chart down and you play it and there's a, um, there is a rhythm section there with you. There's generally a piano player, a bass player, um, a drummer, um, and you play down through like a chorus or two, like a couple of choruses. Um, but that's also in a way, like not to bring it back, but in a way it's a lot like reading again. But instead of reading specific notes, you are interpreting what you see on the page and figuring out what to play over it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, two fives and, uh, you know, and, and maybe different people have a different way of getting around that. Um, but that, that's been my experience. So in general, would, would all of you say um, that there are practice materials available that you can access that give you examples of things that you're likely to see, especially if, if um, you're not practicing that kind of thing as your main style? Like, John, what, what do you advise your students to do Especially again, if they come to you and they say, I'm a rock player, but I'm a little worried if I go to this audition that I'll have to play over different types of changes. How do you? Well, okay. So, um, you know, for, first of all, you know, a, a lot of the materials, uh, the, the, the way that the ensemble um, audition process for uh, students who are uh, currently enrolled and they do their ensemble rating, the way that works is, uh, the teachers will look at the your your current numbers. The third of those uh, numbers is going to be the number that indicates your current um, uh, improvisation rating. So if you come in to the audition as an ensemble uh, 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 improv rating of four, then the teachers will so they the, the teachers all have books in front of them that have a list of tunes for each level. So if you come in as four, then you audition for, uh, any of the tunes that are in the five book. So, in other words, uh, a committee much earlier than than when I came in, um, we put together a series of books and said, okay, this is the, the this is the level three stuff. This is the level four stuff. Five, six, seven, all the way up to eight. And um, so, when they do the auditions, uh, the improv section of the auditions, they pull out one of those tunes from the appropriate book, um, and and have you audition on that. And what they're listening for is just how well are you sort of handling the challenges inside of it. So as a, as a teacher working with a guitar player trying to get better at improvisation uh, in general, what I often tell them is that improvisation and composition are really the same thing. Improvisation is composition done quickly. Composition is improvisation done slowly. So your goal is to listen to the chord progression and to find something that sounds good with that. 
and the, and and I think that the whole process of like analyzing the chord progressions, figure out what scales, what arpeggios, and all the technical things are, are necessary to learn. But those are like learning the letters in the alphabet, so you can formulate words that formulate sentences, which then convey thoughts. So, um, I what I find is often the hardest thing for somebody who comes up playing rock. Um, the hardest thing for them to wrap their heads around isn't, isn't the fact that the chords are complicated. It's that they have to keep track of what chord is being played at any given moment. So if this is your first time uh, doing this, uh, what, what I would say is, is that if you're trying to work on your improvisation and you've never done any kind of a jazz, here's a great starting point. Start with a blues chord progression. You, you know, Get on YouTube, type in blues chord progression backing track, right? Whatever key you want to play in. And then... Uh, at the end of the chord progression, uh, like uh, uh, pick your favorite turnaround, common one, dun 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 dun, dun, dun uh, uh, in whatever key that is for the last two measures of the chord progression, and then play anything you want until you get to that turnaround, and then play that turnaround. And you'll, if you haven't done it before, it's surprising how even though it's a simple idea, it's it can escape your concentration a few times until you recognize, oh, I have to keep track of that. And then from the, that's a great starting point because from there, then you can start adding more challenging chords to go with that. So you get to the fifth bar and there's a D flat seven while you're in the key of F, mm -hmm. you know, then, uh, then, then I have to have to find a couple of notes that work with that D flat seventh chord or whatever it is, right? So does that, does that make sense? Does that answer your question? It or was does that... make sense. And I think, um, I think that, from a practical standpoint, when you're talking about the different types of charts for each level that the ensemble department has, this is part of the resources that they have on their website. I, I yeah. believe that that's correct. So you can look at what they have. And then also you all as guitar faculty are aware um, of what is being given in the ensemble audition. So this is another good way to say like, okay, don't panic because you're not going in in the dark. You can ask your teacher and there are resources available you can actually see in advance, as Abby was saying, you can take a look at what's going to be put in front of you. So it doesn't have to come out of the sky for you. And then here are some great techniques from John. And now I'm going to ask David just to what are some of the things you can work on outside of your lessons and, and kind of work on this skill. So David, What's your perspective on the improv part and how do you have your students work on it? Well, there's two things. You want to be prepared on the one hand for Berkeley, but also I, I always try and look at the industry, the music community, as um, the goal. I, I try not to say, okay, this is something you're going to be seeing in school. I, I try and remind people... Um, I mean, my experience is when I started at Berkeley, I got a lot of, oh, that doesn't appeal to me. I'm never going to use it. You know, I, 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 you know, I don't, that's not my style. I don't hear that anymore. With bands like Meshuggah, players like Steve Vai, Animals as Leaders, Polyphia, I mean, more and more, there are guitar players out there who can play clean. They can play dirty. They can pick. They can. They have classical, you know, finger picking chops. And also, with 
bands like, let's say, Meshuggah, I mean, a lot of melodic minor shredding. No more of like, yeah, okay, I just want to be a rock player and all I need is like Dorian and Phrygian and maybe Phrygian major or harmonic minor. That's over. I, I kind of make, make it clear that, no, you don't have to like trade your, you know, your black guitar shaped like an axe. You, have to, <laughs> you don't have to trade that in for a hollow body and, you know, shave your beard and get a tie and suit. That's not, <laughs> that's what you're not <laughs> do. But you need to be aware of the fact that, I mean, I have students bringing in whole tone reggae things in odd times, prog metal stuff in all sorts of modes. You, you, they, they need to be the thing about jazz and I want to be very careful because I hate jazz snobbism uh, but there is a large no not large there is a larger amount of chord colors that you get to improvise in mm -hmm. and that's being applied more and more in, in, in other styles mm -hmm. now Pair for that is ask your teacher, and what I do is, um, I mean, I'm kind of like a jazz guitar player that doesn't want to play jazz. <laughs> um, you know, my band Screaming Headless Torsos, it's not really quiet dinner music. <laughs> so I have a lot of um, groove examples mm -hmm. that are outside of minor seven dominant and major seven chords. So I help them um, get ready to groove over whole tone and diminish, get bluesy with Spanish Phrygian and all that kind of stuff. But, so uh, uh, hey, David, I, I actually had a, you were making me think, because you are an adjudicator of these auditions. So when you see someone who comes in that they don't have a language, like they don't, they, you know, they're not bebop language or post-bop language or whatever, but they can play and they're open because the improv is, again, back to somebody was saying it's, I think John was saying it's creating melody in the moment. It's, yes. it's right. So, I mean, I think maybe that's the thing when you s hear somebody, you know, they don't have that language of a certain era of jazz, but you can tell that they also, there's that spirit of improv mm -hmm. of going for stuff. And mm -hmm. because that's what you want to think about in an ensemble, this person's going to be able to go and because it's not necessarily just playing that language. Like, how do they, you know, oh, we're going to throw this out. We're going to bring this out. Let's have fun with this. Let's be courageous and fearless with that. Yes. So, I mean, I, I'm assuming that that's part of all of your assessment when you have a student coming. You can tell this person isn't a bebop player, but they can play their instrument and they have that sort of fearless hey, let's go for this, let's try, let's just create some melody. Because there are ensembles at Berkeley where that's, you know, like for instance, your ensembles are, you know, would have that. I mean, I could think of even Abby's ensembles or, or John's situations where just that spirit of improv, of let's create something, I think is more powerful. Would you guys all agree with that? Like, it's not, oh, you know every Coltrane lick, but you, are willing to go into this situation and create something melodic. Well, that's what I wanted to address. First is you want to try and be more open-minded and get your teacher to you know, expose you to a lot of different ways of playing. Now, in an ensemble uh, audition, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but in the situations that I'm in, especially when a player comes in, we look at or we actually ask their preferred style. Mm. 
So if they say, yeah, jazz, jazz fusion, yeah, it's going to be a jazz piece. But if they, if they say anything else, we choose, um, let's say, a straight eighth. So they don't necessarily have to have that language, but they can still attempt to um, improvise. And I say, hey, you know, at a reasonable level, you can use distortion. You know, play, play the way you play. Show us. Also, if this was climbing and they can barely make a boulder, we don't put something in, you know, we don't put Mount Everest in front of them. Right. So, so That's if, important. You, you know, if they're a blues player and they say, hey, I'm a blues player. Yeah. So – if they're that's like a rating one two three uh, my benchmarks are rating three is like a solid blues player doesn't get lost has a good feel has a nice amount of blues vocabulary but they can't play over changes level four is simple changes and what i recommend for non-jazz players is to check something out like uh, the chicken um, it's a total groove tune. It has long passages of seventh chords, and then they speed up. So you have to, that's your, for my non-jazz players, that's often an entry for them to play over changes. They're all seventh chords, but they're not in one key. So if this blues player can handle, um, let's say, level four stuff, so my benchmark for level four is somebody, they make the changes. Um, it's not pretty, <laughs> but they make the changes. Level five is they can play those chords and it's very, you know, it's, it's smooth. Level six is where they're doing in the moment simple, that's um, more difficult now, uh, melodic development. But for players who are non-jazz, we put something appropriate it's not like, you know, oh, you can play over jazz. Okay, now we're going to do giant steps or something really difficult. Right. It's going to be some kind of straight eighth. I mean, we're not a lot. Not that I even really remember. I mean, the day I can remember all the audition materials, the day <laughs> I can retire. Yeah, <laughs> this that, is, oh, go ahead. That, yeah, I was just going to say, that's what you just said was really helpful, I think, in terms of students thinking about that. Uh, you can come in and say your style and, and that you guys are all, you guys are like seasoned pros at this in terms of listening to a student and assessing all this stuff to put them in, in the right level. So, And also it's really important what you just said about um, the number system is not a judgment, right? It's, it's like within improvisation, there are different harmonic considerations that you take into account when you're in an ensemble situation at Berkeley. And so the way the numbers are used is to let people know how comfortable you are with a different type of chord change, like playing over different types of changes. And so you could be an incredibly great rock improviser and you could say, well, I don't understand why my rating is low. I must not be good. Well, no, it doesn't mean that. It just means like that's, the placement tool that we use for those types of ensembles for that category, right? And so people, you know, people get really obsessed, I think, with the overall rating. But I think what we've seen with both improvisation now and reading before is that it's a placement tool that has like relative complexity that is not necessarily applied equally to every style, right? So it's very possible that it's okay from a judgment standpoint 
that your improv is at a three if you're a rock player or a classical player because that's what's required of what you're doing and your reading might be an eight right or it might be a seven or a six or something higher and you think and if you want to bring that improv up that would be fantastic because it will only help you in the long run to understand how to create melody and spontaneously compose over different chord changes and that's something that you will work on that will help you in the long run and may not also be required for your main style right now for what you're doing so i think that everyone has to understand that it's a placement tool um, abby is that kind of how you think about it because i'm betting with the students you see that improv is kind of like it's like the flip side of reading right it it's um uh I have, uh, and I think we, we might all have some of these, some by audition ensembles. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where an ensemble has uh, specific skill sets uh, that we use in it that aren't really represented completely in the auditions. And that way they just, you know, leave it up to the individual teacher and you have auditions. And, um, and I think that's a, an important um, kind of nod to the fact that you shouldn't, you should, you should take these ensemble ratings numbers that you get and use them as a, oh yeah, I'm, uh, I'm low on my vitamin B. Does that matter? Mm, yeah. Okay. I'm going to add. Okay. But don't use it as a, um, a merit assessment of your talent or your ability. Use it only as a, oh, okay. I could build this up if I want to address that. And, uh, they're all pretty darn good to address, but you know, uh, the by audition ensembles show there, there are other areas. And, and, uh, also there's people that graduate that are, uh, incredible players that don't have high ratings. I think all those people would probably, we would think they were, these are people we admire, you know, uh, at the same time, I bet if you talked with them, they would say, Oh yeah, I would love to go in and improve my reading. Uh, you know, um, but at the same time, it doesn't mean that they are not a monstrous musician. Mm -hmm. Right. I, and some of those bio audition ensembles are like your Joni Mitchell ensemble. Mm -hmm. Jeffrey Lockhart has a, a lettuce ensemble. Um, they're really stylistically specific or they're for writers or, you know, those kinds of things. So those are always open in a different way. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I want to go back, David, to something you said about the, that John also mentioned about composing in real time and about the way that you play something is really important because I think that feeds into another category which feels a little nebulous to people which is your rhythm like how how that is judged and what are you listening for when you're listening for rhythm in the ratings auditions David um just a quick aside, mm -hmm. when you bring in your prepared piece, mm -hmm. don't try and impress us. Right. Bring in something that says something about you. If I never, ever have to hear giant steps at a fast tempo where they're trying to show up, oh I'm God. so great. I, you know. And the thing about teachers is I've seen students play some tune that's been beat to crap but if the student is excited about it, we get excited about it. It's like, wow, they're really, this, this tune has been beaten and, you know, 
first of all, that's number one. Number two, um, we do listen for groove of any style. So the fourth number is time and feel. So um, it's weird. I've virtually never ever heard the phrase great rhythm guitar player and the name Eddie Van Halen in the same sentence. But the fact of the matter is in a Van Halen tune, the time where Eddie goes off is very, very short, but he, his time and feel are just great. So keep in mind if you're an, an, an any style player, but especially if you're a non-jazz player and, and you know these rating auditions can be kind of you know scary, bring in something where you shine and you show us what you can do and we can really hear how oh this great you know blues feel great so if then if in you know the especially when you get to the higher numbers of improv which are more jazz um, oriented um, you can get to do it kind of in your style or straight eighth um, you you can you can show you can still show what you can do, especially how your time feel is. So it doesn't, it's not necessarily in that particular language, but more importantly, it's in your language. So that's what I would do. I like that you tied these things together and I wanna go back to the prepared piece when, when we're at the end of the categories. But what I love is that it does, rhythmic groove and feel is often tied to comfort because if you're not comfortable and you're not breathing and you're tense, you will rush or your time won't feel comfortable because you don't feel comfortable. So that is a big part of rhythm. Cheryl, do you feel that way too? Absolutely. It's all, it's all connected. It's, and, and also, I think what Fuse was saying is, is true about, you know, okay, Eddie Van Halen, he didn't play rhythm guitar, but he, if he had to, he, he'd have great rhythm. I mean, there's, the way you play melodically and the way that you comp in a rhythm section is completely related, how you relate to the beat. And, and I guess these things too, are they're, they're not the same, but they overlap feel. Like if it's funk, it's gotta be funky. If it's swing, it's gotta be swinging. So all those elements tie into that category, I, I think in terms of how you express yourself melodically, rhythmically, as a rhythm guitarist, and then the feel of the style. And John, that's true. Even if you're like a screaming, burning rock guitar player, your time really matters. Your time really matters a lot, I think. Um, you know, because, uh, uh, well, okay, so in the first place, like if you've, if you've, ever, if you've ever spent any time listening to the band Dream Theater, um, the music that they play um, explores a lot with just really sort of interesting time feels, you know, like the meters are changing sometimes every measure. Uh, the forms tend to be really complex and really long, really complex music. And if you, if you were to, you know, isolate out John Petrucci's guitar parts and listen to them and then put them against uh, an imaginary metronome, you would find that his guitar playing like hits the center of the beat regardless of how complex the rhythm gets. 
Um, in fact, I you know I I know for a fact that 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 the other band members in that band have nicknamed him Gibraltar for that reason. Um, you, you know they uh, <laughs> so um, so so time feel for that music is incredibly incredibly important. The uh, the aesthetic in the case of that band is to place everything in the center of the beat, um, where not all music does does that. Um, like R&B tends to be in the center of the beat, sort of, uh, you know, maybe more jazzy, jammy things will either sort of be behind the beat. Um, you know, some things that are sort of more in the indie side of things or rocky side of things might put things in front of the beat, you know, which means, uh, uh, no, in front of the beat means that you, you place your note slightly ahead of where the beat actually is, but without speeding it up. And there's a, and there's a difference. Okay, and behind the beat is the same thing, uh, you know, going the other way. That like the the you know the tempo maintains what it is, but you so if you're playing behind the beat, you create this illusion that the band is kind of pulling you along, and you're sort of like almost reluctantly coming along. And there's something about that that sort of creates enough tension that makes it sound cool. Like when somebody does it really really well, you just think, oh, that's cool, you know. So. I think how you interpret your time feel um, does a lot in terms of how you make the music feel. And I think whatever style you're doing, that's a, you know you're trying to make it feel a certain way. And time feel um, is is a big component of how that works. So I think it's useful to understand how it works in a few different ways. That's so great, John, because it really is a combination, as Cheryl and David were saying, of like your stylistic authenticity and your personal authenticity. So um, Abby, I think like you work with a lot of people who are writing their own music and, and what might be happy and good for them to realize is that's a place where they may feel strong, where things come together for them. That what we're listening for in the ratings audition at that point is your understanding of your styles and yourself and then your comfort and being able to center yourself before you perform in the audition, like taking a breath, kind of going through what you need to go through before you play. Would you agree with that, do you think? Me? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think those general, those general uber musicianship uh, mm -hmm. skills, if you wanna call them that skills, are, are going to come to bear always, and they'll always be there for you. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, I think and I want you to keep talking, but I want you to tie it in now to the fourth category that you, David mentioned as an earlier number in the list of numbers. But I think like it all comes together in what they see as instrumental skill. Yes. They being yes. the people who are listening. So yes. all of these things we've talked about, the way you play everything, you know, the way you play when you're sight reading, the way you create melody and and listen for space and compositional skill when you're improvising and the way you can play things with a rhythmic feel that shows that you have an understanding of yourself and what you're doing and the style you're playing in that sort of comes together in some ways in your instrumental skill where people are listening for your facility on the instrument your technical comfort level your tone your ability to play legato and staccato and like can you can you uh, control your dynamics and your colors and your articulations and your notes and um, 
all of that stuff kind of comes together in a way. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit, Abby? Instrumental skill? Um, yes, that number is, uh, it's a wonderful and probably, I mean, well, all the numbers are important for specific things, but that's that's a very, very important number because it, it has most of the room for individuality in it uh, on the tests. The sight reading examples are very specific. So, you know, if they give you a particular sight reading example, it's going to be uh, your, your number that you get on that is going to be related to that sight reading example and not how you might do on a different style of sight reading or something. Um, but this uh, instrumental skill is a place where uh, additioners can, can get all of that mojo stuff, everything, all your general musicianship skills in, in on the picture. Um, David, what do you listen for when you're specifically putting that instrumental skill number on that page? Um, for guitar players, um, we also ask them to comp. So we can see, oh, are these just basic triads or even if they are seventh chords, are they only root position chords? We can see what kind of vocab chord vocabulary they have. So even if somebody you know doesn't do well for some reason, let's say on their improv or so, we also have them comp. And I've seen cases where someone didn't do that well in their improv, but they demonstrated a high ability of understanding the instrument. So their instrumental uh, skill number went up anyway. Right, and right. As an aside with, with rhythm, again, choose a piece that makes you sound good. I've seen uh, rating uh, auditions where someone completely messed up their improv, but they ha in their prepared piece, they have a great feel. And we've bumped up their time feel anyway. So the, with, the, with the instrumental rating, it's uh, for guitar, so it's chordal uh, vocabulary, um, kind of like the placement. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit nebulous, that should be feel, but it's kind of, you can see, have, you know, does the guitar player right. have more vocabulary and can they use it in a good way? And, and then, how your hands are working there on the instrument. Right? And then also, even if you fail, let's say, you don't do well with um, uh, your, uh, your improv piece, so it's something that Cheryl said, kind of go for it anyway. We can, you know, if I can tell, oh, this person has facility, but they're, you know, playing wrong notes, that doesn't mean it's, you know, they have to fix that, but that, that's not all bad in terms of their instrumental mm -hmm. um, skills. That, again, for me, would put their number up. That's great. Yeah. Um, so, John, what's a couple things super targeted you're listening for with instrumental skill? Okay. So, for, for with instrumental skill, I, I actually can give you a really simple answer. Um, to me, uh, the less the person struggles with what I'm hearing them play, um, and the more transparent 
their process is, I would rate them higher in terms of instrumental skill. Simply meaning that somebody who does something really, really, really well, you, it's, it's harder to sense how difficult or how easy what it is that they're doing is. So if the music just seems to be just kind of flowing out of them and there doesn't seem to be any struggles around it, it's just coming out the way that they attend, they're telling the story they want to tell, you know, whatever it is, um, that, that, makes, that makes me think, um, you know, that makes me want to place them higher in terms of instrumental skill. Now, of course, when I um, audition, um, I, I'm asking a lot of questions about, you know, trying, trying to figure out what they know how to do and what they don't know how to do. This is especially true in an entering audition scenario, you know, because, and um, so th that, that's kind of where I put it. So um, whatever it is that they play, it, like I'm listening for their level of mastery around it. That's probably the best word I could use. So this is an awesome point, and it's the absolutely perfect segue to everything David has been saying here and there in his asides about choosing your prepared piece, everyone. And I hope that you see that, like, we start with the things that scare you, that seem nebulous, and it really comes into being able to walk into a room and present who you are to other musicians. And then they can help place you so that then you're in a good educational environment to get better on the skills that feel comfortable and then build the ones that don't feel as comfortable. That could be style specific or allow you to jump to different styles. So if you're listening to John and David and Abby, what they're trying to say, along with Cheryl and Ian, is pick a prepared piece that you feel absolutely comfortable with that allows you the, to make the most music that you can possibly make. And when you come in and that's your first statement, that you really don't have to worry about what they're gonna put in front of you for sight reading and improv and the other parts of the auditions because you have shown who you are. Yes. And then they can tailor the other part of the audition to your strengths. And everybody's, David said yes, everybody else is nodding. So if you're watching it on the video, you're watching heads go up and down. And if you're <laughs> yep. listening, you have to trust that this is what's happening. If you walk in and you say, oh my God, what if I get David Fusinski? I'm going to, I heard he plays jazz, even if it's in this weird way. I'm going to impress him and play giant steps, but you're a bluegrass player. That is not the best start for your audition because it doesn't assist them and really listening to where you are and, and then choosing the next steps in the audition. Um, Abby, would you agree with that? I think that is absolutely the best overall uh, sum up. It's a, that's a deep overall sum up. That's perfect. In your prepared piece, your identity as a musician yourself will come through. Let it be transparent, like John said, mm -hmm. um, as much as possible. Uh, and then the rest of it can be, you know, hey, you know, uh, vitamin B, you know, vitamin D. What what do we need to boost? What will be most useful in this or that playing environment, you know? Mm -hmm. I think um, I want to hear everybody's final thoughts in a minute um, as we kind of wrap up our hour. But Cheryl, this is something that you and Ian and I see all the time. And I just want to take a minute. It's why do you do the ratings auditions? I mean, you have to do them when you enter because you have to have a placement number to start. And then we always say to everybody, we really encourage you to do them. 
and I have a sense of why I think it's important, and I'd like to hear from the two of you about why you do. And I think it's important for a couple different reasons. One is what David and John and Abby have said. It's really good for you to get a sense of where your skill sets are and maybe what's going to be required of you, as John was saying, because you don't know what opportunities are coming down the line. And you're in this school that will allow you to build all of your skills, even the ones that aren't maybe required for your immediate style. So there's that. There's a personal growth in that way. There's also a personal growth in walking to, into an audition. And developing that skill that John has developed now, where he can walk into a high-pressure situation with the Boston Pops getting a last-minute call and looking at a chart and saying to the conductor, this is what I can do right now and this is what I can't do right now. What do you need for this moment? That's a deep skill set that's not easy to develop and you get to try it out. And then the third thing is something people may not realize, which is Ian and Cheryl and Ben, who's our coordinator, we get calls all the time from different parts of the colleges inside and out. And they say, oh my gosh, this opportunity came up. There's musical, kind of like what John experienced with the pops, but in school, there's musical, there's a gig, there's an audition, there's someone coming through. We need a funk player who has at least a rating of a four in this area and this area. If we know you, we can say, oh yeah, get that person. If we don't know you, what Ian's going to do is he's going to go to the database in the registrar's office and he's going to look up your ratings and he's going to cross-reference it with style. And then we're going to pick from the list. And, and one thing I'll say is that there was an instance once where I saw this in action. Um, Thaddeus Hogarth had hosted this amazing funk performance that was part of a larger symposium at the college. And all the students <clears throat> were invited afterwards to a reception at this nice restaurant across the street called the Capitol Grill, which mm -hmm. hopefully we'll get to visit again soon. And um, one of the students who was like a soloist in the concert had been my student when he was in the eighth grade, like a long time ago. And so he came and sat with me when we were at the reception. And Rob Rose, who was the <clears throat> senior vice president of all the events, he leaned over to me and he said, hey, that young man that's sitting next to you is really impressive. And he was an amazing player. I said, yeah, he's great. And he goes, yeah, but you know, I have this thing coming up tomorrow. And when I looked at the ratings audition list for the number I was looking for, I didn't see him, but he clearly can play like at that level. And I said, yeah, you know, he hasn't wanted to do his ratings auditions. He hates auditions. He doesn't do them. And he just auditions for the teachers, like on the side to get into the bands, but you should, um, you should definitely trust him. His playing is worthy. He's really professional. And he goes, oh, that's great. Do you think he would like to play for Quincy Jones tomorrow? And I said, yeah, I do. I think he would love that. And so afterwards, he went up to him and he just said, hey, we really need you. Can you come and play for Quincy Jones tomorrow? And he did, and he nailed it. And um, this particular young man, his name he's an alum now. His name is Alex Williams. He's a very successful touring musician and has played in movies and and, um, and on tour and runs a music school in Nashville. But he was an example of someone who avoided these things like the plague and then was lucky enough that we happen to be in that room. And what I'm saying to you is like, do the auditions, you know, take the opportunity because you never know what's around the corner. And hopefully like Alex, you're building great relationships and you're putting yourself out there. But this is just another tool to do that. Um, what do you think, Cheryl? Like. What, what are your please do your ratings auditions advice to people? Well, yeah, well, that's an 
an amazing story, Kim. Um, well, first is that there's that point of view that I have of it being a benchmark for your own progress. Mm -hmm. We all need to see that. We can never see our own progress. So you, if you treat them that way, it's, it's, it's a positive approach. The second thing is uh, your whole life as a performing musician, you are auditioning. You know, it's like you could go out and be on a tour, but you come home and then somebody goes, hey, someone else has an opening in a band and come by. And no one likes it. I mean, <laughs> no one, you know, that's the truth. No one like, but you can get more comfortable doing it. You can only get good at things that you do often. If you don't do it, you can't get an opportunity to get better at it or get your, how you relate to it more comfortable. So I think that's the important thing too is that no, no one's, you know, oh good, I want to go on a thousand auditions, but you, you know, over your life you probably will and every time you do one, you just get more comfortable with it. So that's what I, I think about it. That's great. Ian, what about you? What's your perspective? Yeah, I mean, just the idea of practicing auditions. Like, I mean, if that that's all it was, it would still be worth it, right? Mm -hmm. Just the idea that once a semester, you can just practice doing an auditions and the stakes are pretty low. Like, your numbers aren't going to go down, right? Uh, Emphasize that point. Your yeah, numbers your numbers are not going to go down. You can go in and they can go up or they might not but they're not going to go down and they're not going to go down because they can't go down because that's the rule. It's not just like we, we trust you and, and you're like, no, you have no idea. I'm going to have a terrible day. They are, it's impossible for them to go down. So you can trust that you're just, you can only go up. Right. Um, Ian, do you have a, a finish to that thought? Yeah. I mean, I guess just to like put a little cap on it. I mean, I haven't had nearly the, you know, exciting and storied careers of the panelists today. But even, you know, I've had a, a bunch of gigs where I had to walk in and it was a book of music and it was just like, you got to play it. And in a way that's, that was like kind of an audition. Right. And that's terrifying. But like, you know, I guess, like I said, practicing being able to go in and play on the spot and be cool and be nice still, you know, um, that's right. And the more prepared you feel, the easier it is to be cool and be nice. Um, so we're wrapping up this cup of coffee with all of you. And I'm just wondering if you have a one sentence final thought, um, John Finn. Um, yeah, I mean, I really like everything that was said about um, about practicing the auditions. I, I think, in terms of re-auditioning for your for your ensemble rating, I mean, the you know, the simple fact is that the higher the ratings are um, in the ensembles, the bands are going to be better. So, if you uh, if if you want the experience of playing in stronger bands, um, that's a, that's a pretty direct path to do it that like the higher ratings you that, that you have um then it, it's it's fewer obstacles for auditions uh, for for ensembles that you can play in mm -hmm. um and yeah that's that that's that, that that's really great I, I think if i have any uh uh parting thought is that you know no matter what you do just really focus on sounding good every time you play Mm -hmm. You know, take care of your music. Your music will take care of you. That's beautiful. Thank you.
Thank you, John. Um, I didn't make that up. That was Steve Morse. (laughs) Oh, well, you said it really beautifully. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, David, what what do you have as your final advice Um, for people today? The ratings auditions aren't just there for you. They're for everyone else, and they help us put you in the right ensemble. Nothing is worse is than being an ensemble that's too easy for you or too hard. You, you won't learn anything. And then last but, but not least, to drive this point home, few things in life are guaranteed, but you never get a second chance to make a first impression. And I don't have any exciting stories like Quincy Jones, but often we're looking, we're trying to fill spots in our ensembles. Mm-hmm. And I need groove players but if you come in and you know you're trying to impress and do some you know i won't know who you are right so choose something that's about you yeah and honestly yeah did we mention that they can bring a piece of their own even as even if it's outside of the jazz um that's really important because i don't know if they know if they all know that you mean a piece of their own to play as their prepared piece yeah, so usually yeah. the player brings something in and the, you know, the student and uh, faculty rhythm section plays with them. But mm-hmm. they can bring in a play-along track, like let's say if it's an Animals as Leader tune. I mean, I, you know, if you put that in front of me, there's no way I can play it. Right. They should know that they can really show, they can shine in these, uh, in these opportunities. I think that's a great point. And I think um, before Abby wraps it up, we're going to keep reminding everyone Talk to your teachers, look at the criteria on the ensemble website, because as David said, you can set this audition up to be as successful for you as you can possibly make it. It doesn't have to be this nebulous, scary thing that you're walking into. So I'm really glad you said that, David. That's excellent. Um, Thank you so much. Um, Abby, what do you think? I think if you can look at it, as much for you, uh, I, I and it is for everyone else too, but if you can look at it as much for you, like uh, a free skill building opportunity, that's kind of neat. It's like, oh yeah, I'm going to do this uh, Pilates class. You know, think of it like that, where you can keep checking in and getting reassessed, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's a free skill building opportunity. Um, uh, I, I'm getting inspired. I, I wish I could go and do it, you know, again, it's like, oh yeah, I, I should do that. Um, however, while you do that, at the same time, you have to not take it personally. You have to work on the skills without letting it get, you know, while, while saying, I am going to assume that this is not a personal reflection of me or my future. I think that's so important. Um, this has been really fantastic, everybody. There's so much here. We could go on for another pot of coffee, but I think this gives everyone a lot to think about. So I think it's so important. Everybody look at this as a learning opportunity. We're here to help you. And until next time on Coffee Talk, coffee cheers, everyone. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, David. Thank you, Abby. And thank you, John. Cheers, everyone. And we'll see you next time on Coffee Talk. Go practice. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks, everybody.